Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody, from a, a, a rather wet, chilly California. It's noon on February the 15th. Seems like we're edging away finally from the COVID crisis. The news is much better on many fronts. Um, but it's also true, I think, to say that it's becoming clear in terms of the, the architectural consequences of COVID on all of us. One of the things that um, I saw in the news today is that uh, insurers now are rejecting many workers' compensation claims related to COVID-19. This was from a piece in, of all newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, not generally a newspaper very sympathetic to the working class, why so many COVID-19 workers' comp claims are being rejected. I think what we're seeing in February 2021 um, are in very stark terms the reality of our world. And one reality is of the weakness of organized labor. Uh, one person who has spent a lifetime, quite literally a lifetime, uh, evaluating and working on behalf of organized labor um, is my guest today. Sarah Horowitz is the author of a new book, Mutualism, Building the Next Economy from the Ground Up. And uh, not only has she dedicated her life to quite literally rebuilding working class organizations, but she comes from a long line of uh, working class and, and union activists. Sarah, tell me about your, your grandfather, Israel Horowitz. You begin your book with him. He's a remarkable character. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he came here as an immigrant. Uh, his mom was my, had the same name as me, Sarah Horowitz. She was a garment worker. He started organizing garment workers, was involved in a big shirtwaist maker strike. Who knows what a shirtwaist maker actually is? Uh, but it's the skilled part of being a garment worker. And he was a vice president of the Ladies Garment Workers Union. Uh, and I didn't know him personally. We were not on the earth at the same time, but as we all have, uh, well, in my case, my mother told me so much about him that I, uh, he was a presence in our life. He was a presence, obviously, as a grandfather, but also it seems as a an inspiring political figure. As you said, he was a, a fairly senior person within the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. What was that union? And why is its narrative so symbolic of the changes in uh, labor organization in the 20th and 21st century? Yeah, the ladies, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was called the ILG, uh, and the Amalgamated Clothing Workers were these two unions that really understood how to build the institutions of workers. So not only did they organize workers into traditional unions, but they then were able to build a union bank, union insurance company, union housing. 
there was union education, union arts. And so it really surrounded workers and it really taught not just workers, but workers as they built their own institutions, how to build institutions. And I think when we look at the crisis we're in, we can look at it from the perspective of climate change and racial equity and food insecurity, but it's the underlying crisis is that we don't build our own institutions. And I think that's the thing that that group of labor leaders really taught and has gotten lost in labor history, um, but needs to be refound. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalized extras like stickers, surprises, and special guest artwork. Each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keen on for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash Keenon. It seems you were introduced to this, at least anecdotally, at a very young age when you used to visit your grandmother, uh, the wife of Israel Horowitz, uh, as you say, Sarah Horowitz. You said you didn't have a great time, but it, it because her English wasn't always that good. But it no, introduced- not her English wasn't good, but she, uh, she was, she was a character, and she lived in union housing. Right. And, and she, so- she, uh, she, she wouldn't spend a lot of money. She said when she gave you ice cream, she sprinkled coffee on top. But what it's was it about Sarah Horowitz's existence in New York that speaks of the success of unions? You know, I think that the thing that was true so much for my grandmother who lived to 96 was the union, not only did she 
do well as a worker and could enter the middle class and have children who could go on and have formal education that she could not have, but that she had community with other garment workers. And I can remember her putting her chair, her little beach chair in front of the house with the other, um, other workers and really having a sense of security and community. And I think sometimes we think of that as the cherry on the icing on the cake, but that was brought about because of the worker organizing. And that's, I think, the lesson and the metaphor for us today is we're just watching what is happening politically. We're feeling completely dispirited and insecure. And what we have to start to realize is that we have the capacity to start to organize right now and that that's a big important lesson, I think, for the progressive left is that you can't just think that the role of government is about just providing services, but the role of government is to support these new institutions. I call them mutualist. Mutualism is not a name that I coined, but if you look, mutualism in America exists in unions, cooperatives, most recently in mutual aid groups and in the faith community and that we should start learning how to organize our communities again. And that's how you have the ability to really call upon government to support the institution you built and therefore start building security again. Well, before we get to the fixes, let's make sense of, of, of what happened since um, the achievements of, of your grandparents in building a uh, a society and economy that protected the rights of, of, of workers seems to have changed so dramatically. We had uh, Thomas Frank. I know he's a historian and a, and a polemicist you like. You mentioned him in your book on our show recently. He's very critical of the the failure of the Democratic Party to recognize its core constituency of labor. Do you share Frank's critique that the part of the crisis we will of course come to Reagan and um and neoliberalism and all the rest of it but part of the problem is that the the democrats have forgotten their core constituency yeah you know i i, I kind of think of it as the cherry on the icing on the cake problem is that we forget you have to have cake you know you have to have the building blocks of institutions and I agree so much with Thomas Frank's analysis. When you look at the late 60s, we stopped building those institutions just as we were so completely under attack. And that, I think, you know, if you think about it now, so many people look to the nonprofit sector as the progressive sector. And the social sector, which would be unions and cooperatives and uh, faith-based groups, those are different. And they're different because they organize a community. The community then has self-determination. Each one of those has their own money through dues or subscriptions. And then they have an ability to pass wisdom on from generation to generation uh, by a board or a long-term focus. And what I agree with Thomas Frank is that we really have gotten to this place where we think we will analyze the problem we will create a solution, we will impose the solution, and then we will solve the problem. But you haven't empowered people to learn how to do it for themselves. And that's been our tradition in America. In fact, it's one of our best traditions is that we know how to take care of one another. We're good at it. And in doing that, we get the best government because we say this is what we need. 
And I think Thomas Frank is right. We've gotten very professional and managerial about telling people what they want and need. And um, it, it, A, it's not working. And B, um, it, it deprives us of learning how to do it ourselves. Yeah, the, um, it's not just Frank. We had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of um, Michael Lind. Um, yeah. He has a new book out, The Class War or New Class War in which he suggests it's not just the economic crisis, but the political crisis, the crisis of democracy is due to the, the disappearance of these intermediary institutions in American society since the war, uh, particularly unions. I assume you echo uh, Lynn's concern on that front too. Yeah, you know, I think that there's getting to be a body of work that is not getting the attention that it deserves, I think. Well, it is I, on this show, Sarah, maybe yeah, not so. And it will, it will soon because it is really the, the right pathway. You know, I think what we're realizing is we are in this together. We are going to be a majority of color country and we have to be a democracy. And so we have to have the institutions that bring us together and also are run by grown-ups so that we can agree about what we can agree about and disagree about what we can disagree about and have a discourse in an institution where we're focused on preserving that institution, adapting it, making it grow, holding it accountable, re making it reach its potential. And it's really these institutions that have built the most, um, the strongest, um, social movements. If you look at the civil rights movement, we've almost forgotten the role that A. Philip Randolph played. Some people might say, who is that? Well, he was the head of the sleeping car, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, who along with A. Philip Randolph, an amazing organizer, integrated the AFL. And not only did they integrate the American Federation of Labor, but they integrated the military in the United States. And then they were the chief organizers of the Civil Rights March on Washington. And that's the whole point is that they were able to grow, build institutions, build coalitions, and pass that knowledge across the country, across all the, all the mutualist organizations. And that's, I think, what we've lost. You know, I, one of my favorite phrases is the revolution will not be foundation funded. And we really have to get off this. We have to start building our own institutions and develop our own organic leaders. You, trace, yeah, you, you trace in the book um, the beginnings of the assault, or maybe not the beginnings, but one sort of symbolic moment in the assault on unions on Ronald Reagan's um, banning of the aircraft union, uh, aircraft controllers union. You see that as being very symbolic. We had Rick Perlstein on the show recently talking about Reagan land. How critical do you think Reagan and his assault on unionized labor was to the, the, the breaking the back of, 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 of working class America? Well, let me just say, I think there's a half a generation before Reagan really did the worst thing, which was we had the great pro-union labor law called the Wagner Act of the 1930s. And the first thing that the anti-union forces did with what's called the Taft-Hartley Act was they said, we are going to split the working class in two, and we are going to only um, enable 
uh, blue collar, lower wage, lower skilled workers uh, to organize and we're gonna separate managers and supervisors. And this is where Thomas Frank and I would really break bread. And what you see now is that's the majority of this professional class. Um, but actually when you look at Scandinavia and other European unions, they don't split the working class. So Ronald Reagan then organized the Reagan Democrats and was off to the races of really weakening the labor movement. By the time he got to the air traffic controllers, he had already done, done the job, but he got a lot of help from the Republicans in the 1940s. And this, I think, is the biggest problem with the progressive world and the Democrats is they've internalized Ronald Reagan. They've separated the working class and they said, the working class that we're going to focus on through the nonprofit foundation world will be very low wage workers. And what they've done is deprived those workers of their best allies, which are the skilled workers. And both sides of the working class need one another. And when they are united, they win. And as they have been losing since Reagan, we, it has been loss after loss after loss. Perhaps one of the reasons is these nonprofits are located on the coasts uh, where you are on the East Coast, where I am on the West Coast. They're not getting into the, the heartland of America. You write a little bit in your book about the human dimension of the crisis. Uh, we had the wonderful uh, American writer Dale Maharidge on the show. He, he, he's written a new book, a, a travel book, Fucked at Birth, Recalibrating the American Dream for the 2020s. It was Maharaj's work that originally sparked Bruce Springsteen to write his iconic mm. song, Youngstown. Maharaj went back to Youngstown and what he found was unemployment and drug addiction. Talk briefly, um, talk briefly, Sarah, about the impact, the, the human impact on the American working class of what's happened over the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah. You know, I think the thing that is just as somebody who grew up in a labor family and loves unions and cares so much about workers because we are all workers, that is the thing that makes us have something in common, um, is just this hopelessness that workers feel. You know, there's just not a feeling of a bright future and not feeling heard. And I think that culturally is something that has been really disappointing to me. You know, I, I actually have some hope that President Biden has not been like that and has a real empathy for what it's it's like. I thought Michelle Obama's documentary, uh, what is that called? Factory, everybody should watch that. When she talked about her father putting on his uniform and that as she saw all workers, she really identified with that. And that's what I think we, we've done is we have really hollowed out the working class and the working middle class and really made it so that they don't feel that they have agency over their own lives. Right, it's the fragmentation, <laughs> it's the, the atomization, the isolation. Another person we had on the show recently is Jessica Bruder. Her book, Nomadland, is about the very economy you're describing of fragmented, um, uh, a, a fragmented working class who have lost their sense of agency. They're working for companies like Amazon, and here their pictures are. They, they're not wearing um, uniforms and they have no real organization. Is, has the proletariat in Marxist language been replaced by this precariat, Sarah? Is that 
uh, is that accurate or is it a rather glib observation? You know, I, I kind of feel like there's this way that like we talk about the gig economy and like, you know, gigs are like what people worked on who are musicians, you know, they're not, these are workers that work for platforms. And what we really have to do is to say that there is a new way that people are working and we actually have strategies. We don't have to make this up. They're here. We have unions, we have cooperatives, we have, the groups that came about in mutual aid this year showing us that people have an organic sense of how to organize. And what we have to do is start to say to President Biden, you, if you really want to affect the change that you say, you have to have a mutualist strategy. You have to let these groups deliver the safety net. You have to let them deliver training and health care and retirement. You have to give them money like FDR enabled the unions in the 1930s, and you will start to see capital flow into this sector. You will see leadership. You will see infrastructure growing, but it won't happen without an active government. And it's kind of an irony because I think people think that libertarianism might be the answer. Let them just do it themselves. But that's never been the case. You know, if you think about religious freedom, it came about in the First Amendment after the colonial people came here. That's government enshrining that protection. So let's actually build these and then you will see the transformation because then they have infrastructure and money and, uh, and know-how and that will be the pivot point. So I actually am not in despair. I think we have all the examples we need and now we need to organize and mobilize so that we have the ability not to you know, just wait for somebody to give us the program that's going to help us. Let's tell the program people what they need to do. All right. So before we get specifically and concretely to fixes, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about work. Just as you say, there's a body of material now uh, on the to in the Thomas Frank, Sarah Horowitz, Michael Lind camp. There's also a body of literature now questioning the very idea of work, or at least Western notions of work. James Sussman, the anthropologist, was on the show trying to re reconnect with uh, pre-industrial uh, African culture of work. Uh, we had the, uh, the, the journalist Sarah Jaffe on the show reminding us that work won't love you back. She quotes the Italian feminist Silvia Federici saying, love is the great anti-individuality. It's the great communizer. Rather than falling back on work, we need to remind ourselves of the value of love. And we even had a guy called Robert Ringham last year, uh, sorry, last week on the show, writing a, a kind of manual of how to leave the labor force. Uh, what would you say to someone like Ringham, who's basically given up on the idea of work and is strategizing a life where you don't have to work anymore? Yeah, I think that there's some like bullshit in that, honestly. I, um, I, think, that, <laughs> I think that what I really learned from freelancers that really profoundly affected me was how freelancers and independent workers start to put their lives together by deciding what's important to them keeping their nuts small so that they don't buy into the consumerism. And I think sometimes people think that's neoliberal and I think they've gotten that 100% wrong. I think that it's really important to work. I think Freud is right, it's work and love. 
I think that we are working way too much. I think we've had policies that have not made us feel secure. I don't think that we are planning for the massive changes coming about from automation. But make no mistake, like you need to work. I think people need to get up in the, you know, in the morning and put on their clothes and get some stuff done. I think that that's healthy. And I, it makes me kind of crazy. I think it's kind of a, a, a diss to work and workers. And, um, but it, what is right is that it's gotten completely out of whack, that people are just working way too much, that their money's just not going far enough. And that's why I think we have to, and I agree with the idea about love. I think it is about love. And I think it is about connection and empathy. And we've, we've gotten away from that. And that just makes us not have lives that feel secure. And uh, I mean, I, I find the discourse to be shocking and mean. And I think, you know, look at what kind of president we had and what he just mm. did. Well, don't remind um, so, me of that. We, we've, we're, 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 we're trying to forget about him, um, Sarah. But uh, you're right that work is, is, is so important and so meaningful and also so potentially tragic. You mentioned Doug Shifter, the uh, organizer, the driver, driver organizer um, who committed suicide. Uh, Jessica Bruder wrote a very influential piece about him. Work is meaningful. And I want to move on. Uh, the rest of this conversation, Sarah, to talk about what you're really doing. You you, you founded the, the Freelancers Union, um, a network, a, a labor network of, of freelancers. Uh, why did you do that? So, you know, I just want to say it's a union. It's the Freelancers Union. And that when you look at all the history of workers, you know, we had medieval guilds and guilds. We had craft unions in the 1800s. We had industrial unions in the uh, 1900s. And we're going to have new forms of union organizing. And when you look at the freelancers union and so many of the union groups that have come or labor groups that have come, they're organizing independent contractors like alphabet workers right now. They're organizing people where they are. That's how you organize. You don't tell them that they need to be retrofitted into the new deal and have to be employees. And once that happens, then they can get the privilege of being unionized. No, it is about people coming together and forming unions and freelancers needed unions and still do. And what we did is we, in effect, collectively bargained for benefits. We built an insurance company, um, a medical practice, and freelancers passed Freelances and Free Act, which has not been uh, in New York City, if you're a freelancer, uh, your employer has to have a contract. And if they don't pay you in 30 days, you get double damages and attorney's fees. It's no kidding around. And it was passed by the New York City Council unanimously, including by Republicans. And I think that's the hope here is that I really believe we're going to have a political realignment. And the, and the party that organizes the workers together is going to be the party that wins. Um, and I just hope that um, that happens soon. You have a, um, an interesting piece at the beginning of your book, I'm going to quote, you said the political realignment is producing strange bedfellows. Freelance software designers in San Francisco may realize they have more in common with factory workers in Western Pennsylvania than they do with the men and women who run Apple, Facebook or Amazon. Uber drivers in Queens may realize they're not so different from freelance writers in, in Los Angeles. 
Farmers in the reddest heartland states may realize they share an economic model with some of the bluest grocery stores in Brooklyn. Is, is that what's happening, Sarah? Um, uh, we have this, this the, the birth of, of lots of interesting initiatives, very much echoing your message of mutualism, the rideshare drivers, United groups, for example. Are we really seeing this or is this just wishful thinking? No, no, I, I think we really are starting to see, and we're starting to have the tools, you know, it's also fashionable to like poo-poo technology right now, but I think it's really interesting that you start to have groups that like Mighty Network, Circle, Mobilize, Substack, that are starting to enable what I call group infrastructure. You know, I, I think Facebook groups are kind of ridiculous, but they help people come together and oftentimes can be helpful, but you can't organize on Facebook, but Google groups. And so we're starting to be able to organize people together onto platforms. And I think that's what, what the change is gonna be. But I do think we have to see that both the top of the Republican party and the top of the Democratic party, the top one-tenth of 1% 1 is doing quite well right now. And we can't just let people say a few platitudes, put out a statement on a website and think that we've solved a problem. And we have to have workers realize like their allies are other workers. And when we organize together, that's how we win. Very briefly, Sarah, you have uh, the last part of the book is, is what you call the mutualist future. Um, you talk about changes in labor, government and capital. Uh, and then you have a, a final chapter called you, which sounds as if it could have almost been written by a Silicon Valley marketer. Explain what 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 has to change with labor, government, and capital. Um, you know, what's really important in this is that, number one, we have to have a government that's committed to building the mutualist sector. Number two, that money has to come from uh, having us look at how we're financing the endowments and other kinds of big capital. Uh, foundations, they should have to start to put some money into the mutualist sector in order to maintain their nonprofit status. And we then have to start to change ourselves. And this is where I think people, this is the thing about- This is the you. Is, is, is this, this neoliberalism. But you know what the you is? The you is about how we wanna build our lives and to feel like we have the ownership and power to do it, but we can't do it alone. It is in that love and interconnection. And that's always what a union is. You know, what is solidarity? Solidarity has two components. One is something spiritual, something that connects us all together and economic, how we are connected. And that's really what we're talking about is building back solidarity but through institutions and not just ourselves. And I think if that's the if that's the way to read the book about mutualism, it's the how-to guide to be interconnected, not just big ideas. What can you do? The book will obviously go down well in San Francisco, where I am, and Brooklyn, where you are. Uh, there'll be workers on the left who will understand it. But how are you going to convince the Trumpist right, the, the white working class people, that rather than investing in, in, in a guy, in a charlatan, or at least in my mind, a charlatan like Trump, they should be thinking about mutualism. First of all, I don't 
think people are really stupid, actually, and I don't start with that as a premise. And I think that when people can see that they can form an organization, they can join an organization near them to get their health insurance and training, and there are like actual tangible things that can enable them to make their lives and their children's lives better, like that's what all people care about. And that's what I think is so important. I think that we have to like get away from like the social media way that we're analyzing this world. Black, brown, white, we all want our children to do better. We all want to have the ability when we're old to be taken care of and when we're sick to not be so worried and to start to have a life that's got time in it and some feeling of control and the ability to love who we care about. It, it that it doesn't require the ability to to change and you know some people are you know racist and um you, you know you have to start to bring the whole together some people are going to come and some people aren't but we're going to put together a majority based on on these values well i certainly hope so sarah uh, your book mutualism building the next economy from the ground up is, is is again it's a very brisk interesting read and it's full of uh memorable anecdotes about you and your family uh it's it's, it's a must read i think if you're interested in in, in our next economy what else sarah you, the book is out today or tomorrow and i know you you want people to buy it from real bookstores rather than amazon uh but what else should people be reading in these strange times? You're in Brooklyn, I'm in the Bay Area uh, while we're still stuck at home. One thing is people can come to our website at build-mutualism.net. And um, soon, hopefully, uh, with our friends at Google, people will just be able to Google that easily. But um, and you Our can buy friends? You mean uh, our unionized friends at Google, so. Yes, right. Seriously. And... Um, but people can also go to Indie Bookshop to buy online books from their local bookshops and other local bookshops. And that's what I've been encouraging people to do. Okay. This book is a must read, Collective Courage, uh, which is about, it's an exact combination of mutualist organizations coming together. Uh, it's about how uh, as African-Americans organized uh, after the Civil War, uh, and throughout the, that century, Who's uh, it by? people could go to uh, their cooperatives to uh, get a place to meet and connect. And it's uh, Jessica, Professor Jessica Gordon Nembard, N E M B H A R D, Collective Courage. And that's one. I feel like we have to start getting into labor history again. This is a good, easy read. It is your first, first book, not your only book for labor history. It is put out by the United Electrical Workers. It's probably really hard to find, but I always tell people to start with this. Um, it's fast and great, and it was designed for workers to learn about the labor movement. And um, yeah, it's just good book. Well, Sarah Horowitz, real uh, honor to have you on the show. Congratulations on the book. You're someone who not only writes and thinks about mutualism, but have dedicated your life as an activist uh, and uh, a political organizer. I hope you have a, a, a mutualist, a, a mutualistically successful 2021. And I hope you do indeed build your movement because in many ways I agree with what you're saying. So uh, we'll have you back on the show again to report on mutualism. Thank you again. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.